I think there's this cliche phrase about movies being ahead of their time. I think that Jodorowsky's Dune might have been the most literally ahead of its time movie ever. If Alejandro's Dune could have been made, it would have been bigger than 2001. It was built up to be the greatest achievement in science fiction, and it just evaporated into a billion small black pieces of space. Monster Island Resorters, and thank you for tuning in once again to the Monster Island Resort, your online radio show that goes bump in the night. My name is Miguel Rodriguez, and I am your host in discussing horror in history, art, literature, film, and beyond. And today, we are taking a look at a special film. In fact, it's a film that never got made. A couple of weeks ago, I had the pleasure of finally seeing a documentary called Jodorowsky's Dune about Alejandro Jodorowsky's efforts in trying to bring a film adaptation of Frank Herbert's Dune to the big screen. He got an incredible group of artists together in pre-production to try and sell the idea, and unfortunately, it never happened. Now, there is a documentary all about their epic experiences. The documentary did not disappoint. It's fantastic. And today I have a great guest to discuss it. It is Steven Scarlatta. He is the producer of the documentary Jodorowsky's Dune, and he's here to talk about everything from horror to getting this documentary made to the experiences and some of the thought processes behind why it's important to hear the story. I wanted to say at this point that I've had this interview in the works for a few weeks now, and as many of you know, very sadly, we lost H.R. Giger, one of the most prolific and greatest creators of dark and surrealist art I know that I have ever seen, and one of the most influential designers and artists on the world of genre cinema and genre storytelling. His influences cannot be understated. We would not have the same kinds of films or comics or any video games or anything without his levels of brilliance that have been gifted to us. And so it is with great sadness that I dedicate this episode to H.R. Giger, who is featured in the documentary Jodorowsky's Dune. So this is a very appropriate time to do that. You will see some pretty extensive interviews with Giger in the documentary talking about working on the film Dune that Alejandro Zodorowsky was trying to get made, and it's really great. So I want to include that as well. This is dedicated to the artist H.R. Giger. So without any further ado, let me present Stephen Scarlatta. So 
first of all, congratulations on a truly excellent documentary. Jodorowsky's Dune was a total treat to watch on the big screen here in San Diego a few weeks back. I'm glad we got to talk, and I hope it keeps up the forward momentum. Thank you very much. Thank you for supporting it, actually. Thank you. Absolutely. I'm hoping to get more people out there to watch it because it tells such an amazing story. So the first thing I guess I wanted to bring up has to do with with the audacity it took you to decide to even tell this story. I don't really want to spoil it for people who haven't seen it yet, but I think one of the many great stories that you actually have Alejandro Jodorowsky tell in your documentary is about how he decided the film he wanted to work on with producer Michel Seydoux would in fact be Dune. That that story is great. And so I kind of, I guess, want to get your own story. When did you personally know you wanted to tell this story about the unmade Dune by Jodorowsky? It's really weird. At first, I, I guess to rewind back, I mean, I was born in the early 70s, so I grew up with Star Wars, and Star Wars was really huge for me. And I was a big reader of Starlog magazine and and, uh, Fangoria. And when Return of the Jedi came out, we knew it was the last Star Wars. And from reading those magazines, I just knew Dune was coming out, and it was supposed to be the next Star Wars. And I was very familiar with Dune already, because my mom was a big book reader, and the catalogs that would come to our house, the Book of the Month clubs, always had Dune on the cover, the giant worms, and I'm a big horror fan, so... Yeah, those great covers, I remember those. Yeah, they felt <laughs> like, what are those books? And then so that this big movie was coming out with giant worms. That's all I knew. And it was supposed to be the next Star Wars. So I was excited <laughs> as hell. And um, I don't know if you remember at the time, there was like toys. And uh, oh, yeah. looking back now, was a, I found a proposed uh, Atari game they were making. You know, So it was, it was for kids. They wanted it to be for kids. Which is wild and, considering the source material. <laughs> oh, my God, right? <laughs> it's so strange. So, yeah, so I don't know. When I was a kid, I rented it and I, and I taped it on Betamax and I, I was so excited for it. I also had like a Marvel comic that had the whole movie <laughs> laid out. And, man, I just did not understand it. And I thought I was supposed to like it. So I just kept watching it over and over again until I freaking kind of fell in love with it. And this is David Lynch's Dune? Yeah, David Lynch's Dune. So so in a weird way, I just had this fascination with Dune since I was a kid. And then fast forwarding when I got into film school in the, the early 90s, I was a huge horror fan. And horror was kind of... I don't know, I was going in a route I wasn't too into. It just seemed like everyone was trying to get the next Freddy and Jason franchise with Dr. Giggles and stuff like that. And I was just like, it's kind of falling out of horror a little bit. And so I just, I remember I was renting every Dario Argento movie I could find. And then one day at the video store, I saw this movie called Santa Sangre and it had Claudio Argento's name on it. And I was like, all right, let me check this out. And that movie forever like blew my mind and it wasn't a horror film but there was stuff in there that was terrifying to me like images i've never seen before and from that moment on i kind of got intro- introduced to alejandro jodorowsky and started to try to track down all of his films at that time they weren't available you had to like really hunt and seek them down and so First, I had this fascination with Dune, and then I discovered Jodorowsky years later. And then a few years later, in the late 90s, I found this website called The Symbol That Grows. And that's when I first read about Alejandro Jodorowsky was going to attempt to make Dune. Mm-hmm. And when I immediately read that, my head almost exploded. And I almost got like a, a weird feeling in my chest, I won't forget. Like, it was just like, oh, wait, what? This guy was going to make a movie with giant worms? <laughs> like, 
what would it have been like? So I just got really obsessed over it. So it started off as this crazy obsession, and I would just start researching it. I couldn't find anything online at the time. Nothing really existed. There's a, a terrific website called uh, Dune Info. Mm -hmm. Everyone should check out. He wasn't online yet. And so just being a movie fan and, and obsessed, I just went to the cinema library and I just kept researching it and researching it. And then eventually kept finding more and more stuff on it and actually seeing that it somewhat did exist. I remember I found a variety ad that, you know, that had Dan O'Bannon attached to the film. It was just like, holy crap, this movie did exist. And yeah, after just doing a lot of research, it just started hitting me. Maybe it's Maybe this is something to do a documentary about. You know, like I said, it was an mm -hmm. obsession. And then now I started noticing, wow, stuff exists. There might be something here. But yeah. there's actually information out there. Well, you know, you made me come up with something else, uh, a little more philosophical, maybe, regarding you as a horror fan discovering Santa Sangre, which is probably even Jodorowsky's most accessible movie. Mm -hmm. But if you take his, you know, his surreal oeuvre of films, one thing I've noticed is they, they hold a lot of interest for people who are fascinated by the horror genre. And you've made no secret of your own love for horror in other interviews. So what do you think about horror's relationship to the art movement known as surrealism? In your documentary, both Jodorowsky and the artist Salvador Dali are discussed. And those elements marry to horror so well. So what do you think about surrealism and horror works so well together? Huh, that's a good question, actually. I mean, I guess with Jodorowsky, what it was, I mean, when you grow up and you're so used to sometimes, I guess, American horror films, they're so like straightforward, you kind of know the structure of it. But when seeing something like Santa Saga or even seeing something like Holy Mountain, which is, isn't a horror film, but almost there's, when I was younger watching it, there was elements in it that really freaked me out, unsettling, like things that unnerved me. The movie was actually reaching inside of me and pulling nerves that I never knew I had. Yeah, you see it when your eyes are closed. Yes, absolutely. And that, that's what it is. I mean, it's like this unknown, like they managed, something that David Lynch, some scenes in Lost Highway to some scenes in Eraserhead, he manages to like, it's almost somehow build like an atmosphere to get you lost in. And because you're just so not used to seeing stuff that way, and then and actually they manage to actually pull you into their film so somehow, that's, it's just, it's very interesting. I think the same emotions are captured in horror and in something like Holy Mountain, especially. There are some truly <laughs> disturbing images in that. Absolutely. And yeah, like Santa Sangre, even the stabbing scenes, mm. <laughs> they're very brutal and they're very like visceral. And ooh, seeing that Claudio Agento's name's attached to it, I could see the Italian influence in the in the stabbing scenes, you know. And, oh, absolutely. <laughs> you know, that's what I kind of loved about it. Then when I started venturing off and you start watching the violence in even um, El Topo, it's just something mm. like really unsettling about it. It's like when you first watch Zombie, yeah. the famous eyeball scene, like how many of us did we think that was about to cut away and it never did no it goes all the way yeah <laughs> exactly and that's just something about them as filmmakers with the surrealism it's like they they can go all the way and they, they almost can trap you inside a nightmare it's just very unique yeah it's, it's a hallucination almost mm -hmm. i wish there was more of that because everything just needs to now write a script you need three acts it needs to make sense you need some cases the, the you know that third act with the 
person surviving and it's everything is just straightforward all the time but when you get those special surrealist horror films that really pull you in it's just man i wish i wish there was more of that but unfortunately there isn't the biggest it's not the biggest money making no and, and yeah we'll definitely come to that concept later on but what is interesting is that's one of the things that's so special it seems like these guys who can make these films like jodorowsky or 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 fulci even uh Mar- mario bava they have the vision that makes it unique and makes it surreal and makes it hallucination it's not an easy thing to do and i think it elevates the horror genre and i think people who are horror fans who are looking for a more sophisticated genre are just really drawn to it and end up almost having to defend it against i don't know maybe like some of the art house crowd who Mm -hmm. are like this isn't a horror movie don't don't denigrate it but you yeah. know, in a way, is that really denigrating it? I mean, what is the cultural view that says that that's denigrating it? it, it it's a conversation I like to have. Um, oh, no, I, I, absolutely. It's like the same argument I have with people, and I also show them, like, Suspiria. They just don't get it. They expect something totally different, but... Yeah, it's like you said, it's not Friday the 13th. Yeah, it's a, it's a different horror experience. Yeah, and a totally elevated one. And actually, it's one of the things I loved about the documentary. And then, of course, finding out that the producer, you, was a, a genre fan, it all just meshes so well. It's perfect fodder for discussion, I think. Really glad to get your particular opinion on that element. Oh, round. So more toward the documentary itself. You loved the original Dune. You had this childhood obsession with the story because of your being drawn to genre in general. You find Mm -hmm. out about this version that never was, and and it leads you to want to find out more and eventually tell the story. That takes some audacity to actually say, hmm, I want to find out more, to saying, hmm, I want to be the person who lets the world know what happened. And not only that, but who assembles the original people involved. You got Alejandro Jodorowsky. You and, and everybody who was involved, of course, got yeah. Alejandro Jodorowsky and uh, who, who he calls his artistic spiritual warriors, at least those who are still around, to actually speak on camera and tell their stories. So how did you go about doing that? How did you assemble everyone? Yeah, it was... Uh, well. We were very lucky first to get uh, Jodorowsky on board. I mean, it was a lot of filmmakers. We work on so many projects that never get made. Like I did a New York hardcore documentary and it just took years to get the next project off the ground. Like so many projects fell apart. And then here for years, I'm researching this and then starts getting this idea in my head to do this as a doc. But like you, I rarely ever seen Jodorowsky in documentaries or anything. So <laughs> it's, it's, it's weird. Like I brought the project to the director, Frank Pavich in around 06 or so. And we, you know, and I started just uh, delivering him all the research I was doing. Mm-hmm. And luckily he did some research on Jodorowsky and, and found his contact info and just wrote to him. And from my memory, it took him like over a year or so to get back to us. Oh, he must have given up hope. (laughs) Well, I guess we did. No, totally. I didn't think it was going to happen. But I think maybe during that time, he just gave it a lot of thought. And also, Dan O'Bannon just passed away, and then David Carradine passed away. So, And then once he came on board and agreed, like he first told the director went to visit him at his place in Paris, and then he told Frank, the only way you're going to be able to get this made is to get Michel Sadu on board, the producer, because he has the art and everything. And without him, we have no film. And yeah. so with Jorowski's blessing, next step, we got him, Michel Sadu. And Michel Sadu's office was completely covered with all the artwork from Dune, all the real. Even at this point. 
Yeah, it's in his actual office right now. Uh-huh. When we went there to shoot, the walls were just filled. Like when you go in, you f- see the Golden Palace, right? When you go into his office, you know, the original art of it. You know, it's beautiful. His whole art walls are covered with the original art. Yeah. And so you can see that it's still inside of him that, you know, this was a special event in his life. And he was down, and we had Jodorowsky, we had Sado, and then little by little, just everyone started coming on board Chris Foss, and then Nature Giger. And then yeah. it's we- like dominoes. Exactly. Yeah, you had to start with with the yeah, leader, was, right? The head of the snake. <laughs> exactly, and the fact that we even got him—I'll never forget that day. It was just like, "Are you kidding me? This is this is actually going to happen?" <laughs> yeah, that had to feel amazing. I mean, even watching it, it's like I can't believe these guys did this. Because as you said, I don't. It's so rare you see an interview with Jordorowski, let alone one in English, <laughs> that I just couldn't believe it. I mean, he's in the whole thing. Yeah, and well, that's that was one of the main things we really wanted because at any time we could have lessened him in the film, but it's Jordorowski's Dune, and no one's better than him to describe the film. And plus, whenever you're going to get the chance to see him in a full movie about him, you know, he is such a character, and he is yeah. so very, very, very blessed to get him. Oh, yeah, yeah. you know, he, he seems as exuberant as one would expect, given his crazy output, right? Mm-hmm. So I would just have to wonder, does he get into, like, storyteller mode when on camera, or is he just always like that? I mean, do you go out for coffee or go on a walk, and, and he's, like, the most interesting man in the world, you know, telling these incredible stories with exuberance about him? He kind of was. I, I only got to see him a few times. When I first got to Paris, I had a, you know, we all met with him really quick before we shot. It was just, I couldn't believe where I was, you know. I kept taking pictures, sneaking off pictures of him because I couldn't believe I was standing there with him. <laughs> and it was just, it was amazing. But also it was just like, you know, we're, we're working. And so we, we shot him like three interviews during that time period when we were on that shoot. Yeah, and every time we sat down with him, yeah, he was 83 at the time, and then, oh my God, he just wouldn't stop. He was amazing. Yeah, you wouldn't believe he's 83. Not at all. It's unreal. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he just had so much to say about, you know, there's so much we couldn't even use, you know, there's just so much he wanted to talk about, you know. I actually wanted to ask that. I mean, I, I, I must, there must be so many stories on the cutting room floor. I, I can't wait. Are there going to be special features on a DVD or anything like that? Um, I, I just noticed that it looks like it's going to be a double a Blu-ray. I have no idea. I've been out of the loop with all that, but right. I, I, hope, I hope so. There was so much research and... <laughs> that's know? so cool i can't wait i'm gonna buy it day one because this is one of my favorite documentaries of the year i can't wait oh, thank you the structure of the documentary if you took that structure and put it on another documentary you would mm-hmm. say it takes on an almost talking head form and a lot of times people try to avoid that mm-hmm. but you have jodorowsky mm-hmm. and he's, he, he tells these stories and it's not only how he tells it, because he's got some of his spiritual warriors, uh, as you mentioned, of course, Giger and Seydu and some of the other people working on it, telling these stories. It's just not, not just how they tell them, but the stories themselves are like bizarre. Some of the stories are outright insane concerning Dali or concerning Orson <laughs> Welles. And again, I don't want to ruin anything, but they're, they're totally engaging. And that, they're a great reason to see the film. So... How did you go about writing the documentary? I mean, did you have any idea that the stories would be as wild as they are? Or did that even catch you off guard once you started talking? Well, we always had 
questions, of course. It was just constant research and just, you just had your points you wanted to hit. You wanted to get him to talk about the cast, the artist, what his version would be like. And it was just lucky enough just asking the question and just listen to him roll with it. He's doing all the work. <laughs> yeah, because, you know, you just say when, you know, when you just talk about the cast, he'll roll off with it. And then if you mention just another cast member, it'll just, it'll spark a chord in him. I got, I got to say, though, luckily, he just, you know, it's been so many years, but he just knows the stories so well still we were just very lucky i mean yeah with pretty much all the interviewers we did have questions we did research but mm -hmm. yeah just luckily spawned other ideas and other questions to be answered yeah, so uh, the stories just kind of tell naturally it felt very organic exactly yeah it, it, exactly it wasn't like these hardcore interviews we were to get every single word out of him <laughs> or anything. it was just listen to him tell us the stories and they would just really get into telling the stories they were really it, it just seemed like after all these years they were really excited to finally talk about it it must have been some level of vindication for them i would say yeah, I believe so. I think now is the best time for them all to come out and, and do it. Because I, I bet for years people must have been asking. Because yeah. it's always brought up. Lately, looking back at a lot of these interviews, because now when I started researching it, I had a hard time at first finding articles on it. But the more and more the internet started coming to be and you could find back issues of things and all kinds of yeah. back issues of magazines I wish I could have found back then. Uh, you know, it just, it's always been brought up and it's, it's kind of been written about quite a bit. So, and he's always been asked about, I just found a video from like Comic-Con 2003 with Jodorowsky and they were still asking him about it. Yeah. So I guess it must've been hard to say, okay, is he telling the story to death? Do we want, we don't want to annoy him, but it's not, it looks like, yeah, it looks like it was something that they really wanted to tell. I mean, I guess, again, going back to Michel Seydoux, having all the artwork in his office still, this was clearly such a labor of love that your, your documentary is more than just an interview. It's a piece on its own that really gives it the kind of treatment it deserves, I think. Yeah, plus we're all like very big fans of 70s cinema, and this would have been a 70s film, and there's like a whole feel to a 70s film, and we, we, we kind of wanted... We first discussed in the documentary, like we wanted to feel, they wanted to feel somewhat like of a '70s documentary too. Yeah, to get that type of soundtrack and just to get like a different type of feel to it. You know, we didn't want to imitate a Jodorowsky film, but we still wanted it to just have a nice, different tone to it. Definitely harken back to that. Yeah, so the greatest was, decade of cinema. I agree. Yeah, by the way. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah, that's something we've always just been so fascinated with. We just, yeah, it's such a amazing decade, and just to think about what this film would have been like if it came out in that decade, and what would have happened. Also, yeah, it, it makes you dream a little bit. So yeah, it's really fascinating. Of course, one of Jodorowsky's Dune spiritual warriors was the surreal artist H.R. Giger, who he wanted to design the Harkonnens and their environment. And sadly, Giger passed away a few days ago. So I just have to ask you about, I mean, did you get to meet him? What was it like to work with him and see some of his work in person? Tell me about filming his parts of the documentary. Uh, yeah, that, that was actually, it was, a, it was a big highlight for me because like, like I was telling you, a huge fan of horror. I guess going back to Alien, I first saw Alien when it came on HBO when I was a kid. And mm -hmm. I'll never forget the design of the Alien because I've never seen anything like it. But I never put like someone designed it at the time. It wasn't until years later, there was a show on USA called Shadow Theater hosted by Robert England. And I used to tape it all the time because I used to love makeup effects and they used to feature a lot of makeup guys. And one night they featured H.R. Giger and him working on Poltergeist 2. 
And I'll just never forget it because I, I taped the show and I'd watch it over and over again. It was him constantly talking about that worm that grows inside Craig T. Nelson and how he designed it. And that just always just creeped me out. Yeah. <laughs> that whole that scene, mostly the scene when I watched the movie, I guess it had more of an impact just knowing who this weird guy that designed it was and him talking about it. And then just reading Fangoria, just learning about him and how he designed the alien. I just when I was a kid, I was a really big fan of his. Yeah, and I guess when it came down to shoot him, we were, you know, we were very lucky. We got to shoot him at his museum, and one of the highlights was before shooting him, we got to shoot. Uh, he designed Harkonnen furniture. He he got so into the Harkonnen world mm-hmm. that he actually designed the furniture that they would sit in. It wasn't designed for the movie. It was just done for him, just but, in his house. <laughs> yeah, and and it's actually throughout the whole Giger bar is all the Harkonnen furniture he designed. Oh my god, that's so awesome. So I guess the biggest thing I was bugging out of is when I was at his museum before shooting him is like I got to see all these for, was, throughout the, the early 90s and the late 80s. There was a lot of movies he was attached to where he was designing stuff that never got made. There was a movie. Well, there's a movie that eventually came out as Supernova. But at mm-hmm. one point it was called Dead Star. And it was supposed to be it was pretty much what Event Horizon and Hellraiser 4 turned into. It was supposed to be Hellraiser in space. In space, yeah. <laughs> it, it, the creature design was terrifying. It was supposed to be, a, uh, I forgot the name of the director. William Malone was supposed to direct it. But it, you know, it was that film. And, and when I was there, I got to see like the art that he designed for that film and the art for the movie The Train and The Poltergeist Worm. So it was just oh, yeah. like, it, it was like being a kid, like seeing all the, the original sketches. That it just blew my mind, and then you know, then eventually this 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 man comes out, and <laughs> what was really cool was everyone at that museum that day got to see Giger, and you yeah. could see everyone's face going like, "Oh my God, he's here!" Total legend. Yeah, it, it was it was very surreal. It was like almost like meeting Jorowski himself that day. I was like, I just couldn't believe I was there, and again, I was sneaking off pictures because I was such a fanboy and I didn't want to gush, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know his artwork. The thing about Giger that always fascinated me is, you see films like Alien and Hide Behind the Blanket because it's so scary, and then you see the art in the art book that is airbrush on paper, basically, and it's even scarier. You know, yeah, it's unreal how how brilliant he was. Oh my god! Right, and think and think about like sci-fi and horror. What it would be without him? Oh yeah, it wouldn't be the same at all. Yeah, yeah. like because I always because people always ask like, what if about Dune? You know, like what mm-hmm. if it came out and it didn't do well? It's really scary to think like, what if it came out and bombed? And what if they didn't want to then use Giga for Alien, you know? What if they went with the original design for Alien? Oof, yeah, that's a you scary know? thought. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's really scary because when you look up any of the making of Alien, he he was there carving those sets himself, Giga. Oh, yeah. No, he had to. I mean, there was no one else who could do something like that. That exactly. Alien shot? Oh. Exactly. Who else is going to do that? No one, It's all in his head, you know? So that it's like, it's so crazy to think about, like, you know, and to think about too, uh, Salvador Dali was the one that recommended Jodorowsky to see Giger. Oh wow! Yeah. So <laughs> such a such a trip. Yeah, right? it is. I mean, everything kind of ripples out, and you can't really you can wonder what if, but ultimately we have what we have. There's a great example, like Devin Faraci the other day. He 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 tweeted something about the design for the the Sill character in Species, mm-hmm. and when you really look at that design, it's it's really beautiful. Yeah, but it's a shame because unfortunately, I think just 
it was just not the right movie in the right time. Like the movie did not catch on and it wasn't, you know, I don't want to talk crap about a movie, but it wasn't the best <laughs> film. Right. But, you know, I just wish, you know, it, it just makes you think, what if that film was so much better? This could have been another iconic monster. It's just well, like, the design's great. I mean, but it was, yeah, the problem with Species, or one of the problems, is they tried to do 2012-era CGI technology in 1992, and mm -hmm. it doesn't hold up. And Yeah, exactly. The concepts are awesome, but it doesn't appear well on screen. Exactly, and, it, and it's a shame. <laughs> yeah, oh, total shame. You look at the design, you know, and it's just like we almost didn't get enough of his. I mean, at least we got Alien, because look what Alien did. It changed sci-fi it changed video games it changed everything i brought up a couple times even in contra like the bad guys you oh, know totally <laughs> no question <laughs> the alien <laughs> yeah it's an absolute alien ripoff and, and so many were but it just meant we had a lot of great movies a lot of great pop culture to come from it uh even better than aliens own sequels sometimes so there you go oh absolutely <laughs> <laughs> All right, so uh, we're going to wrap things up with a couple of questions here. I have one for you to put on your producer hat, because I think this is going to be a good perspective. As a producer, I can't help but think that it must have been interesting for you to listen to Jordorowski talk about the time when, of course, they suddenly hit the wall and, and realized the film would not be getting made. And there are some times where he expresses some genuine disappointment just to, to put it diplomatically. And one could even call him a tad naive in a very charming kind of way, but a tad naive in believing so strongly in his art conquering the studio system or being picked up by the studio system. There's a scene, and, and I again, I don't want to give too much away, but there is a scene where Jodorowsky takes out a wad of cash. Mm -hmm. And he says, look at this, it's shit. <laughs> you know, it's, he's clearly unhappy with with how things turned out and there's that whole film is an art but film is an art that is relegated by the dollar and so as a producer you very much have to take care of the financial aspects of making this happen yes uh, so when you see an artist like Jodorowsky lament something like that and have that very clear view of the world what does that make you think about in terms of your place in the filmmaking world? Yeah, it, it, I, I see where he's coming from, and I, I totally get it, because for years and years and years, I mean, I've been trying to make films, <laughs> and yeah. I've written many films, and I've optioned films, and it's so hard to get films off the ground, and then you go and you watch films sometimes, and you see, like, wow, that got made. And you look at Jodorowsky, and rewinding back when I discovered him, uh, the only way I can keep in touch with him back in the 90s was through Internet Movie Database. Mm -hmm. And what was exciting at the time was he had Sons of El Topo, like, in production, and he was really trying to get it off the ground. It was just really tough because I, I would go on Internet Movie Database every day and I'd just watch it little by little just dwindle away. And then eventually, you know, he tried to get the director from What a Like Chocolate to direct it with a script that he wrote and that never happened. And then he tried to get another movie made, King Shot, mm -hmm. and that was casted and it never made. So you can just imagine that you have this artist, whatever he's going to make is going to become a classic and he cannot get money to make anything. You know, and then, but anyone can just, the same budget will be given to a filmmaker and they'll make a movie and it'll just 
go straight to DVD or just even straight to a bin and no one will ever know. Yeah. It's just, it's really, it's just devastating how it just works and where you can get the money from at what time. It's almost sometimes you have to be at the right place at the right time. I guess with, with this project, it was just that we were just so passionate about it and we, you know, it wasn't, we weren't doing it to get rich. It was just, we really wanted to tell the story so bad. And maybe everything lined up for us to tell this story, just like in Dune, like everything was lining up for him and you almost wish it almost happened, you know? So maybe for us, finally, all the stars aligned and we're able to get this off the ground. But, you know, it's very, it's very, it it is quite sad. And I can see where he's coming from with when he's talking about like this devil, this money in your pocket, because that's the way Hollywood feels. I was lucky enough to write a script that got picked up. But then when you start seeing the notes you're getting and everything and what you have to change and what the people who have money are doing to you. Yeah, it's got, <laughs> it, it hurts, right? <laughs> yeah, it's just, you're, 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 you know, you're not, it's no longer your vision anymore. For I, I believe at one point when Jodorowsky, they got to Hollywood, one of the studios was, was going to possibly give him the money if they gave him a co-director. Mm-hmm. He just, uh, the director of the Tower Inferno, and he absolutely disagreed to that. You know, yeah. it's like, Salt, you know, that's and where it, the naivete comes in, right? I mean, he, <laughs> he, the this complete inability not only to not compromise, but but to not uh, not even lie about compromising. <laughs> you know, I know a lot of people like Mel Brooks would have been like, sure, 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 we'll do that, sure, sure and he'll just do whatever he wants. <laughs> Which I guess it worked for some filmmakers later, like John Woo on oh, Hard yeah. Target. They gave him Sam Raimi, and Sam Raimi kind of let him do his thing because he knew <laughs> yeah. that. That's true too. Yeah, it, it, it is. It is a shame, but I think also, like you say, he was was he naive because he wanted the movie to be him saying twelve hours long, <laughs> and it's yeah, it's. But you know, he was coming with something different. You know, I, I still don't, I don't believe the movie would have been twelve hours. It looks like from the storyboards and from the script, it would have been at least four to maybe five hours, if that long. Right. Which is still long, and actually, Gary Kurtz. Actually, we had we didn't have room for it in the film, but he actually defended the twelve hour running time. He said that in the seventies, there was quite a bit of movies that actually did run twelve hours. Russian movies mm-hmm. you need to take three to four intermissions, and then I guess how are you going to make your money? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> which is what 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 Hollywood studios are thinking, which is understandable. You know, I just wanted to to get a conversation about it going because it's not like you know this is the right way and this is the wrong way but your the documentary opens the question and that's one of the nice things about watching the documentary is it gets you thinking about art versus the practicality of making that art and what is the balance how can we continue this and how can we see a vision even if the money might not be there yeah, it's. I mean, look at Eraserhead. Look how long, look how many years it took him to make that film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. half the people are like ten years older at the end than mm-hmm. they are at the beginning. And it, exactly, and then in Inland Empire again, it took him so many more years to do another super experimental movie that was all independent of his own. You know, it's just really hard to just. That's visit. after he had a name. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> they want to make money, and if you have something that's too experimental and too, it, you know, like. A lot of the audiences too today, I guess they just, they won't really get it as much as the audiences in the seventies would eat up certain projects. You know, I think, yeah, it would have been interesting if it would have came out in the seventies. It would have been a trip to see because I I believe we could have lived in a world with Star Wars and Jodorowsky's Dune. I don't think Jodorowsky's Dune would have stopped Star Wars from coming out. No, definitely at all. Yeah, and so we could have both, you know, 
us teenagers and kids could have had our cool Star Wars and the adults could have had their Dune and they could have still remade Dune years later because Jorowski's Dune was his Dune. You know, it just, it worked perfectly for his world. It's almost like a continuation of Holy Mountain. Well, I do love that at least we have something now where we could, or a general audience could see some of what was in his head at the time uh, through the documentary. Yes. Yeah, we're very lucky to have uh, been able to. Now we have that part of cinema history locked away, thank God. Yeah, and it seems also like lately there's this f- fascination. Now now that we have things like the internet where everything's very connected and information is much more readily available, and it's much more easy to learn about projects like this one that never got made, where there's this fascination with these never-been-made projects. I'm thinking there's another documentary, of course, called Man of La Mancha about Terry Gilliam trying to make Don Quixote. There's another one in the works now by filmmaker John Schnepp uh, called The Death of Superman Lives, which is about the Tim Burton Superman that never got made in the 90s. Yes. Yeah, (laughs) which actually looks like it could be a, a fun documentary as well. But what do you think it is that fascinates us about the stories of the film that never happened? Oh, man. Yeah, that's a great question because I've, again, like years ago when I was a kid, I had like a Cinefantastique magazine and inside of it, there was a little write-up on um, David Cronenberg's Total Recall. And I'll never forget reading it because I think that's one of the things that influenced this film too. It was just like, there was a picture of Richard Dreyfuss and then David Cronenberg. It was like, wait, David Cronenberg was going to get, was going to direct Total Recall. And it was going to have Richard Dreyfus, and immediately you put so different. Yes, so not an action film, no. so different. And then that's what started with my fascination of certain projects that were never made because you you always have what's going to you always have what's made, but it's always that 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 mystery, that wonder of like, what if? Years later, I remember a friend of mine took me introduced me to Rick Baker, and I was very lucky enough to go through his studio. And at the oh, time, wow. he was working. He was working on this strange film with Stallone and he was fighting a monster in it and it never came out. And again, it was just like, I got to see some of those miniatures and I was like, oh my God, what, you know, what if, Yeah, (laughs) you know, Stallone fighting a monster, it would have been so different. I guess like his predator in a way. That would have been awesome. (laughs) It would have been. And then that's the other thing I I brought up. I I, I was lucky enough to do a panel at WonderCon and then, and and it's like you, talking about movies that were never made and then you think about instead of junior we could have had total recall too yeah which ended up being minority report you know Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah, it's funny how that works yeah it's one of my favorite subjects i'm fascinated with movies that were never made it's like my favorite thing and i think that's what it is just that mystery of like what if i mean in some cases we're better off what we have than in other cases it's just like oh man like supernova like i brought up (laughs) (laughs) like a parallel universe Absolutely, yeah. Because now more than ever, how many I'm seeing the David Lynch to, uh, Return of the Jedi pop up lot, lots of places now. Yeah, yeah. Because instead of Dune, he would have made Return of the Jedi, and then yeah. he would have had a totally different career because it would have it would have been a hit. <laughs> so he would have been able to make anything he wanted after that. But we have all these amazing David Lynch films, like you mentioned, Lost Highway already, Maholan yeah. Drive. Absolutely, you know. yeah. Twin Peaks, for God's sake, you know. Yes. And think about that. Mostly probably spawned because of his relationship with Dino De Laurentiis. Very strange relationship. Yeah. <laughs> That's another documentary. 
Oh God, I wish I mean, that's got to be the next. Like, uh, what was the one with Herzog and and Klaus Kinski? We oh, my need, best fiend. Yeah. yeah, my best fiend. We need one <laughs> like that with Dino De Laurentiis and and David Lynch. Oh my God, that'd be awesome. All right, well there you go. Okay, <laughs> you don't even need to give me credit. I just want to see it. Uh, um, it's on tape now. <laughs> all right, just a couple more. Well, first of all, this one's I probably know the answer, and I'm gonna cry, but. Tashin, you got to get them to publish that book. <laughs> yeah, that it's been that's been thrown around everywhere. I, I bet I bet give it a little time. Yeah, they'll, they'll probably figure it out because there's, there's going to be everyone's asking about it. So God, yeah, if they were able to pull out that Kubrick book, you know, I believe you know, a brilliant we'll book see, that one. Yeah, yeah, we'll see what happens. I I I, I bet. I bet in a few years or something. Cool. Well, I'm going to cross my fingers, and I hope this has something to do with it. And just for any listeners, by the way, the book we're talking about in the documentary, Michel Seydoux uses – he actually prints this tome, a gigantic full-color hardcover book of the storyboards, production, artwork by Mobius, like amazing piece of art to pass to the studios in order to sell the script and sell the film getting made. And I think there's only, what, like three copies of this thing in existence or something? As of right now, something like that. The number keeps changing. Um, <laughs> but there wasn't that many made. There's maybe 10 or something, and then studios got it, and then they just disappeared. And then, and, Well, it would be just such, such an achievement to get that thing actually published. Yeah, I, I bet they will eventually. Well, we'll cross our fingers. Last thing. I talked about one of the emotional moments that Jodorowsky has and a lot of his cohorts had when the film itself ceased to exist. It's a bit of an emotional roller coaster, that experience. But Jodorowsky is surprisingly inspirational in his affirmations that one should always try to achieve his or her vision, even if they fail. And he says, he makes very clear, the important thing is to try. And so would you say as the producer that one of your documentary's great legacies is to spread that message? Oh, absolutely. I mean, actually, I mean, this movie is definitely dedicated to artists and musicians and writers and actors to everyone out there who's just worked on stuff and it's falling apart because it's just it's almost just as hard to start something new than to just stop something, to stop working on something you've worked so hard on, especially when you're working on something for like even no money, you know? Yeah. You're not getting paid, you know? It's like, but it's what... Art is what inspires all of us. It, we see things or hear things that inspire our ideas to just keep the ball rolling. Yeah, absolutely. And it's like, it's what I did and people who've made this movie many times before. We've all tr started stuff and it's fallen apart. And then it's just about the next thing picking up and starting and doing. It's very beautiful, his message. You know, it is inspirational. It's like, yeah, so you, what you work on will not always succeed, but it's just picking yourself back on and starting the next thing. You just have to do it. Look what happened. Like, Dune fell apart. But look at all the comics he wrote. And yeah. then when you read those comics, they're absolute. Look what the Incal inspired, you know. Meta Barons. Yeah. Yes. And then, and then even the Incal in itself, going through that book, you don't even have to read it. I mean, if you, you should read it because it's, it's phenomenal and it's, and it's really is mind blowing. 
everyone's right about it. But even when you just flip through it, you'll see so many pictures. If you know films as well as I do, you'll see so many images from other movies throughout it. It really does inspire. He's inspired so much just from his comic books, and he's written so many of them. So in a weird way, it's just kind of, it helped him out, and it kind of gave him an, another relationship with Mobius. And when you even look at what he brought all those artists together, and they all became friends, you know, Dan O'Bannon, friendship with Giger, look what it did with Alien, and his relationship with Mobius and A Long Tomorrow, and look what that spawned, like Blade Runner and Cyberpunk. So That's a brilliant legacy. Yeah, I'm just really what we're really happy about is that now people right now we're giving attention to someone that a lot of people don't know was kind of in a weird way responsible for a lot of a lot influenced a lot of this. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And what's great too is people were coming out of the theater who had never, you know, they were dragged there by someone had never even heard of Alejandro Jodorowsky and now you can't help but be fascinated by the man and, and want to learn more. Yeah, thank yeah, thank God because when that was one thing when we were pitching this film, when people asked us what are you working on, it, you know, Jodorowsky's Dune, it sounded like we were talking in another language. People didn't know what Jodorowsky was, and a lot of people still didn't even know what Dune was. We had to explain it. Yeah. So I'm just really happy that there is for you saying that. I'm really happy to hear that because it was one thing we were scared about, but you know, but we were really passionate about telling his story. Well, I hope that a lot of people see it, and I'll continue to push it. And hopefully, you know, this episode will get some people to find it. Thank you so much for promoting it and supporting it and having me on. And I'll promote anything of quality. I want to thank you for joining me and and having this conversation. This has been phenomenal. <laughs> thank you. Uh Oh, no, it's awesome. I love talking horror films and just movies in general. It's my favorite thing. Right on. Well, you're welcome back anytime. Absolutely, man. It was great meeting you. <laughs> yeah, great meeting you as well. Talk soon. Take care, brother. I hope you enjoyed what I consider a very fascinating talk with the producer of the documentary, Jodorowsky's Dune, Mr. Steven Scarlatta. I'm very happy to be bringing more episodes to you, and I've got a few more interviews in the works to discuss horror and history, art, literature, film, and beyond, including some other, hopefully more unique items on the horizon. Definitely stay tuned for future episodes of Monster Island Resort. Join me in the discussion on Twitter. Follow me at Monster Resort, and of course on Facebook. Until then, everybody, stay scared.